Yesterday I went to that awful place. That place that no man wants to go. You said you would just nip in, but once again, you got trapped in their labyrinth of rugs, lights, kitchen utensils, and flat pack furniture. You didn't intend to get very much, but you leave with a trolley full of stuff you didn't know you needed, and you spent far more than you ever intended to. That place called Ikea. Going to Ikea is a bad enough experience for me, but things only get worse when I arrive home. This is what usually happens. I bring the boxes of flat-packed furniture in from the car and lay them out on the living room floor, and then come those dreaded words. James, will you build that for me? I must confess that I am terrible at building things. There is nothing that exposes my inadequacy more than being asked to build IKEA furniture. The craft they make in Sunday school would be beyond me. Now, my normal tactic is to try and prolong building the furniture for as long as possible. I know I have to do it, but I don't want to. I tell Emily I'll do it tomorrow in the hope tomorrow never comes. That is not a tactic I'd recommend, by the way. Eventually, I suck it up and I get to work. No matter what IKEA say I can build myself, no matter how many instructions they give me, I never find it easy. It takes so much effort that before long, I am drenched in sweat and my frustration levels are just rising and rising. All I want to do is just give up and hand in my man card. I wrestle with it and wrestle with it and eventually I am left with something that vaguely resembles what it's supposed to look like. Some of my greatest hits include the wonky TV table, the bedside table with the drawer that only opens halfway, and my personal favorite, uh, the chest of drawers with the bottomless bottom drawer. Um, after all my work and frustration, the end product is never quite worth it. What I really need to fix my problem is someone to help me, someone who knows what they're doing. If I knew at the end of it all that I had someone with me who could guarantee an amazing end result, the job would be far more attractive and less daunting. I wonder if you've ever felt that way about the work involved in building up the church. Maybe you don't feel like you have the right gifts, so when you're asked to get involved, you prolong getting stuck into the work. I just don't have the time in my schedule at the minute, maybe someday. Or maybe the building the church just seems like too much effort. I love the thought of doing a one-to-one -one with a younger Christian and helping them grow in their faith, but to be honest, meeting someone every week just isn't manageable for me. Maybe you have started the work, but you're getting increasingly frustrated because the end result of your work never seems very impressive. I tried talking to my friends about Jesus, but I could never answer any of their questions, so I stopped trying. I just don't see how what I'm doing helps people hear about Jesus. I'm just not sure what I do really makes a difference. What should our perspective be when the work is hard and the fruit of our labor seems insignificant and unimpressive? What should our perspective be when we question whether or not what we are doing is worth it? What should our perspective be if we feel like we have nothing to offer? Well, let's turn to Haggai 2 and find out. But before we dive into the text, there are some things we need to keep in mind. The people of Judah have just returned from being in exile. After 70 years in Babylon, the Babylonian Empire has fallen to the Persians. 
and the people of Judah have been allowed to return to the ruins of Jerusalem. So a remnant of the people, led by Joshua the high priest, and Zerubbabel have made their way back to Judah to start building Jerusalem 2.0 and get their lives back together again. Haggai comes on the scene about 20 years after they got back because in this massive reconstruction project, the temple is being neglected. The people had started to build the temple when they got back, but the work fell to the wayside for two reasons. Firstly, they were afraid of opposition from surrounding territories who had tried to interfere with the work. But more, significant, more significantly, they had all their priorities wrong. They were more concerned about their own homes and their own economic prosperity than they were about God's temple. And the temple not being up and running was really significant because the temple was where the presence and the glory of God dwelt. The temple was where the priests and the sacrificial system operated. It was where sins were atoned for and intercession was made between God and the people. Not building the temple communicated that the people didn't really mind whether or not God was with them. It communicated to God that even after enduring the exile, the people still weren't serious about being in that special, special covenant relationship with God. And last week we looked at chapter one. Haggai came and he challenged the people to start building the temple they had been neglecting and make building the temple their number one priority. And unlike most of the Old Testament prophets, Haggai gets a positive response. The people actually listen to his challenge to put God's glory above their earthly interests so they get to work and start building. Now, if you missed last week, you're probably wondering how on earth does God telling a group of Jews to build a temple two and a half millennia ago have anything to do with me? Well, as we saw last week, if you are a Christian, you are called to be a builder. Not a builder of Ikea furniture, thankfully. Uh, not a builder who builds houses or buildings. You're called to build up the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Peter 2, Peter says that as we come to Christ, the living stone, we are like living stones being built up in a spiritual house. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says that as he has been sharing the gospel, investing in people and building up the church, he has been building God's temple. Paul's teaching was that God's presence today is not in a physical temple or a building, but it's manifested in his people as his Holy Spirit dwells in them. We, the people of God, are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. Then in Ephesians 4, Paul's teaching reminds us that this work of building that temple, building up the body of Christ, is the job of every member of that body. Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service that the body of Christ may be built up. So it's not just down to paid church workers to build the church. Building up the body is a job we are all called to. Every Christian has a role to play in building up the church of Christ. God's priorities haven't changed. He is still building a temple for his glory to dwell in, but in the light of Christ, it looks different. It looks like gospel ministry. The gospel going out people coming to faith in Christ and the church being expanded and built up. God desires that more and more people come under the spiritual rule of Christ and then grow to maturity in Christ. So let's turn to Haggai 2 and hear God's message to a group of temple builders and let's expect what God has to say to them to encourage us in our role of building up the body of Christ and the work we do to advance the gospel. 
As we make some observations from the text tonight, I want to do so under two headings. And the first heading is this, snap out of it, snap out of it. Okay, so verse one tells us that time has moved on a bit from chapter one. We are now a month into the building progress. The builders probably haven't made a whole lot of progress on the temple. But that's not the only thing we're to notice when we see this date. This date is significant because from the 15th day to the 21st day of the seventh month of the year, the Jewish people held the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was held to remember how the people of Israel lived in tents after coming out of Egypt. It was to remind them of God's faithfulness in the past when he delivered them from the hands of Pharaoh and guided them to the promised land. And during that feast, the people would build little temporary shelters or huts around the tabernacle. And when Israel had a permanent home in Jerusalem, they would build them around the temple. And what happened was they would camp out and celebrate for a whole week, remembering what God had done to bring them out of Egypt. It was kind of like the Old Testament version of the Keswick Convention, only the people stayed in little huts instead of holiday homes in the Lake District. The Feast of Tabernacles was also the only feast in the Jewish calendar that foreigners and people from outside the covenant community were allowed to join in. People from all nations were invited to come to the temple. And when Solomon dedicated his temple, he prayed that God would answer the prayers of the foreigners who came to it so that all the peoples on the earth would know God's name and fear him. So the temple had a big part to play in Israel being a light to the nations around them. Now, the 21st day of the month would have been the last full day of the feast. So what's been happening is the people of Judah, and maybe some foreigners as well, have been camping beside this half-built temple for a week now. Now, I want you to imagine what was going through the minds of all those campers around the temple. The temple they had before the exile was built by Solomon, and it took 180,000 people seven years to build it. It was phenomenal. 3,000 tons of gold, 30,000 tons of silver were used to decorate it. And this one, well, it's estimated that a little under 50,000 people have been working on it for a month. In comparison to the old temple, this new one is going to look totally pathetic. This was like getting rid of Westminster Abbey and starting to build a village hall. And in Ezra 3, it says that when the first foundations of this temple were laid, the older generation who had seen the old temple as children wept aloud at how small the new temple was in comparison to Solomon's amazing temple. It's not hard to imagine a similar reaction when these people went down for the feast. And there's still not much more than a foundation. They wouldn't have been impressed at all. The people would have heard the stories from their grandparents of how massive and amazing and glorious Solomon's temple was, and they would have been completely demoralized and discouraged when they saw what lay before them. And we can see from Haggai's words in verse 3 that this discouragement has spread to the hearts of all those building the temple. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? After their initial passion and enthusiasm to carry out God's building work in chapter one, just a few weeks later, and they've had a complete change in perspective. They see the new temple as nothing compared to the old one. They want to stop building. The motivation and enthusiasm they started with has completely run dry. They're discouraged. This temple is never going to look as good. It's nothing compared to the old one, so we may as well throw in the towel. 
If we can't match the glory of Solomon's temple, we're wasting our time. Discouragement has destroyed their motivation and the project is on the verge of being derailed yet again. This is the situation when Haggai comes to speak to the people for the second time. He comes to break them out of negativity and discouragement and refocus their perspective. He comes to stop them comparing the past with the present. He comes to tell them to snap out of it. I'm sure we can all relate to how these builders are feeling in some way. We all have times when we lose our perspective on the work we've been called to do. Because if we're honest, building the church isn't always an impressive project. Building the church isn't always an impressive project. It's not very hard to relate to these builders. Anyone who has ever undertaken some kind of work for God will know what it's like to be tempted to stop working for God. When we commit ourselves to God's project of building up the church, we are going to experience times of discouragement. There will be times when we are going to be tempted to descend into negativity and want to give up. Just like my feeble attempts to build Ikea furniture, we can often feel like we put so much effort in and what we're left with at the end just isn't worth it. We have times when we feel like we aren't seeing much fruit for our labor. We go through times when we question whether the gifts we have to offer the church are making much of a difference. Sometimes the reason we feel discouraged, like this tiny remnant in Judah, is because we can't help but look back to the times in the past when things were better. When the here and now isn't quite as exhilarating or the results aren't as tangible or coming as easily as they were in the past, it's easy to think that what we're doing is insignificant in comparison and conclude that it's not worth the effort, not worth the time. Maybe you used to be great at chatting to new people after the service or talking about how the sermon challenged you with the person next to you, but after a few awkward conversations, you began to feel like you weren't very good at it, so you've started just sticking to the people you know. Maybe when you were at university, you used to meet unbelievers all the time. It felt easy to meet new people and to begin to start talking about your faith, but now it's really hard to do that. You're worried that what might happen to your professional relationships if you start trying to share the gospel. You don't have the time or the energy outside of work and church to meet new people or make new friends. Or maybe you get discouraged when you look at the state of the church itself. The church in Scotland is as good an example of this as any. You don't need me to tell you that not so long ago, the church in Scotland was strong and impressive. There were churches everywhere. But what about now? To use Haggai's words, does it not seem to you like nothing? Congregations are folding. Many of the congregations that remain are wandering from the truth. The sad reality is we could fit all the evangelical Christians in Scotland inside Murrayfield. We are a small remnant of God's people. It would be easy for us to focus on how unimpressive the church looks today and think things are never going to be like what they were and come to the conclusion that the work just isn't worth it. It's just too big a job. We could quite easily come to the conclusion that it's not worth directing our time, our gifts, our effort, our resources into the work of building up the church when it's such an unimpressive project. How would I make a difference when the job ahead is so big? Well, before you get too comfortable, snap out of it. Yes, we all have times when we feel like building the church isn't an impressive project. 
But what do we need to remember when we are discouraged and we want to give up? How do we snap out of it? How do we maintain a right perspective of the work we do to build the church when it can seem so unimpressive? Well, Haggai isn't finished. Heading number two, take heart. Take heart. The Feast of Tabernacles is a pity party. The towel is about to be thrown in. Haggai comes and gives them a desperately needed team talk. But Haggai doesn't throw the hairdryer at them. He gives them two arguments for why they should take heart and keep going. The first argument, no matter how small or insignificant it seems, it's impossible to look down on the work when God is in it. Haggai explains in verse four and five. Look with me to what he has to say. But now be strong, Zerubbabel declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Now you might be thinking that sounds very familiar. And that's because when Haggai comes the second time, he repeats the message he already gave to the people in chapter one. Work for I am with you. Do you see what Haggai is saying? No matter how small or insignificant the work in front of you is, if God is in it, it's impossible to write it off as not worth doing. In the midst of their discouragement, God uses Haggai to remind this remnant of his people that they should keep going because he is with them. That's what they should have been remembering and reflecting on at the feast. That just as God was faithful to bring his people out of Egypt, God is still with them and is still being faithful to the covenant he made with their forefathers. They should have been reflecting on all the evidences that the promise-keeping God of the covenant was still with them. They have returned safely from exile. God is still speaking to them through his prophet. God still wants to dwell in their midst. God still wants that special covenant relationship that they haven't been prioritizing. They should have responded to all the evidence of God's grace by remaining faithful to the job he gave them to do to rebuild the temple. They should have listened to what Haggai said in the first place. Instead of losing heart a month down the line, they should have remembered that because God's spirit was with them, they had everything they needed to keep going and get the job done. In the Old Testament, God provided his spirit at special times to enable his people to do extraordinary tasks they couldn't do on their own. For example, he filled Bezalel and Oholiab with his spirit to enable them to create all the ornate decorations and garments needed for the tabernacle. The spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Samson to kill the lion and a thousand Philistines. And now, the spirit of the Lord remains with the people to enable them to rebuild the temple. If you flick back to chapter one and look at verse 14, we can see that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the whole remnant of the people for the work. This promise is not just that God would be by their side urging them on. This promise is that God would give them the strength they need to do the work. God would be at work in their hearts, spurring them on to accomplish the task. He would empower his workers. And the same is true for us. When we are discouraged, when we begin to lose our perspective, we need to remember that building the church is worth doing because Christ is with us. Building the church is worth doing because Christ is with us. 
For most of us, the attractiveness of contributing to a project increases with the reputation and the ability of the people who are willing to do it with you. Maybe in your job, there's been a time you've been asked to collaborate and work alongside someone senior to you in the organization. Of course, you jump at the opportunity. You look up to that person, you respect them. You've been waiting for the chance to work with them since you started. It brings great job satisfaction to work with someone so esteemed. What a joy to work with someone so good at what they do. But if you were asked to do the same project with someone who is brand new and doesn't quite know the ropes yet, all of a sudden that project isn't very attractive. When it was someone who you looked up to, you didn't really notice how hard the work was. You were just excited to be asked. But now it just feels like hard work. The job is the same, but in your eyes, it doesn't have the same significance. And when it comes to the work we do to build a church, we need to remember that by his spirit, Jesus Christ is with us in the work. There is no project on the face of this earth that is more attractive because this is the job the king of the universe is doing in our world today by his spirit. There might be times when the job looks unimpressive. There might be times when we get disheartened in the work, but we need to remember who we are doing it with. Because when we remember that Christ is with us in the work, there's no way we could ever write it off. It's not worth doing. And more than that, when we remember that Christ is with us in the work, we realize that we have all we need to keep going and get the work done. Don't forget how amazing it is that Christ would even want to partner with us to build the church. Jesus Christ does not need us to accomplish his purposes. He chooses to use us for his glory. When we look around at ourselves, we quickly realize that the work could never be done unless Christ is with us, unless he is at work in us by his spirit. I've yet to meet anyone who can make an unbeliever believe in Jesus. I've yet to meet a sin coach who can totally transform your life with a 12-step plan to make you sin free. When it comes to building this temple, we are powerless. Whether it's evangelism or discipleship, we need help. We are totally reliant on God's grace. We are totally reliant on God's spirit amongst us to do the work of building up the church. If we focus on what we are doing or look back and think, I was doing so much better back then, of course we're going to get discouraged. The work can only be done by the Holy Spirit. So as we disciple one another, teaching and encouraging one another when we open God's word throughout the week, as we serve one another in practical ways, meeting the physical needs of this body, loving and caring for people, when you're sharing the gospel with a colleague or a friend, giving an answer for the hope you have, whatever way you use the gifts that God has given you to build up the church, take heart, Jesus Christ is with us in the work. You're contributing to the work he is doing throughout the world to build his church. And not only that, he is the one at work through us by his spirit. The results are in his hands. And if you're on the sidelines, if you haven't yet made Christ's work your priority, if you're not yet using your gifts to build up the body of Christ, church is not a spectator sport. As Christians, we have all been commissioned by God to build this temple. Jesus said, go and make disciples, and he promised he would be with us as we do it. Why not get on board with what Jesus is doing? Okay, so building the church is worth doing because Christ is with us. Haggai's second argument for why we should keep going shows us that building the church is worth doing because it's for God's glory. Building the church is worth doing 
because it's for God's glory. Look with me to verse six to nine. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Haggai's second argument comes in the form of a prophecy. These builders are promised that a day is coming when God will fill this temple that looks small and insignificant now with his glory. These builders are promised that the glory of the temple in front of them will be even greater than the glory of Solomon's temple. How, how could this scaled down temple be even more glorious than Solomon's amazing, glorious temple? Well, this temple was completed. Shortly after this, the Persians returned all the gold and silver articles from the former temple that the Babylonians had stolen. This temple even got a refurb under Herod a few hundred years later, so it ended up a lot bigger and looking pretty good. But that's not why this temple was more glorious than the former temple. These, temp these temple builders had no idea just how significant what they were building was. This temple was more glorious than the former temple because the glory of God walked in it. The glory of God breathed in it. Jesus Christ, the radiance of God's glory, the glory of the invisible God made visible in human flesh came to this very temple. These builders had no idea what God had planned. But we have an account of it in John chapter 7. How were these builders to know that 500 years later, a greater prophet would come to this temple? A greater prophet would stand up on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles in the presence of the nations. And he would say, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. The work these builders were doing looked insignificant. It looked like nothing compared to the past, but God had something even greater in mind for their future. They were working for something more glorious than they could ever imagine. And just like these builders, we need to realize that we are working for the glory of God. We need to realize that we are working so that the glory of God, Jesus Christ, will be seen by all the nations. Now in Christ, we are the temple where God reveals his glory to the world. As we build this temple, as we build the church, more and more people from every nation can come and hear Jesus say, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. More and more people can come and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the work that this remnant has been called to do in Scotland. There is no other work worth doing. When we get discouraged with what we see in front of us, and we feel like giving up, that's what we need to remember. When we look back to the past and think that what we have today looks like nothing, that's what we need to remember. We are working for God's glory to be revealed to the lost. We are working so that more and more people give Christ the glory that he is due. If you're here tonight and you haven't put your trust in Jesus yet, I have to tell you that there is a part of this prophecy that hasn't been fulfilled yet. There is a day when Jesus Christ will return to judge the earth. 
On that day, he will shake the heavens and the earth. He will shake the sea and the dry land. On that day, he will bring ultimate peace by destroying everything that exists in rebellion to him. Everything evil in this world will be destroyed. All those who did not come to him but stayed in rebellion against him will be destroyed. Come to him before it's too late. All who are thirsty, come and drink from the fountain of eternal life. Jesus came to die on a cross for you. He died to take the punishment for your sin upon himself. Three days later, he rose from the dead because death could not hold him. And now those who trust in him can have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Come to him before that day arrives. Don't leave here without putting your trust in Jesus. And if you are a believer, take heart. The day when this prophecy is finally fulfilled will be a glorious, glorious day. The author of the book of Hebrews quotes this prophecy in Hebrews 12, and he adds that on the day when the heavens and the earth are shaken, we will receive a kingdom that will never be shaken. There will be a day when the glory of God is going to consume the whole of creation, when the kingdom of God will come in all of its fullness. There will be a day when our all-powerful king gets rid of evil and death once and for all. A day when our king will renew creation and we will reign with him in the new heavens and the new earth for eternity. There will be no more suffering, no more tears. There is a day of greater glory ahead for all those who trust in Christ. There is a day when this temple will be finished. God's glory will fill the whole earth and we will spend eternity in his presence. So take heart, don't ever lose that eternal perspective. The work is worth it. Just as we come to a close tonight, maybe you know you need to get involved in the work. You know you haven't been using your gifts to build up the church. You believe the gospel, but you haven't yet got to the point of committing to the work of the gospel. If that's you tonight, remember that there is no project on earth quite like the work of building the church because this is the work that Christ is doing today by his spirit. This is the work that Christ promises to do in us and through us until he comes. Building the church is done for the glory of God and what is done in this life will echo through eternity. Maybe you are using your gifts to build up the church but you're discouraged and you want to throw in the towel. Keep going, take heart. Christ is with us in the work and the end result is guaranteed because he is the one giving us the strength to do it. And one day, he will fill this world with his glory. What is ahead of us is far greater than what is in front of us. Let's pray.